0: This podcast may contain copyrighted material. Pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, limited use is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news, reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. This podcast is otherwise copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Welcome to episode 30 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe within a great war that is not at all civil. It is a war being prosecuted from the shadows by people who are playing the role of caring leaders, like actors in a play, and it's being waged against you, me, and the rest of humanity. Ultimately, these foe-leaders are under the command and control of Satan and his demons, and they have produced the ultimate human war machine. The Bible calls this war machine the world, and it's reached the apex of its power historically, yet seeks still greater heights to glorify Satan. For Satan said to himself, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High, Isaiah 14, 13-14. The world, in this context, is the social, political, economic, and military system that was designed and built to execute this war. Previously, I've said the world was built to advance Satan's agenda. But his agenda now is all-out war, so let's just call it like it is. On one side is Satan and the world, and on the other side is Jesus and the Christian Church. That might sound funny, because many components of the world are fighting to destroy themselves, just like they're destroying Christians but Satan's ultimate enemy and threat is Jesus Christ and the Christians. At the same time, there are too many people in his organization to keep them all under control, so, rather than try, the leaders of the world have decided to use them as bait to thin their own herd while they track down and exterminate Christians and Jews. That's the plan. However, the immediate target is not Christians and Jews, but humanity in general. Humanity is a threat to Satan's ultimate goals until it can be brought to heal using a combination of population reduction and behavioral control. Reducing the population is the first order of business, which is made much easier by the fact that most people have no idea they are in Satan's kingdom and working for him. A lot of them would probably be horrified to learn that their day to day existence actually benefits Satan's plan, and if they learn that truth before they die, Satan knows there's a good chance that they will turn on his commanding officers, the military and political insiders, who do understand what is really going on, and they'll try to kill them. That makes members of his own kingdom dangerous, so he and his human cohorts are trying to ensure that they are demised as quickly as possible after their usefulness ends. The not-so-great Vladimir Lenin once said, or maybe more than once said, that these people are useful idiots. They can be manipulated and incentivized to help tyrants rise to power, but they understand nothing of the true nature of their leaders, thereby making them idiots who will be exterminated at the right time. In the wisdom of Solomon, wisdom is often synonymous with the Holy Spirit that's given by God. Proverbs 2, verses 10 to 15 says, When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths. It is the Holy Spirit of God who opens our eyes, unstops our ears, and gives us the mind to know the truth about people who love their evil, vile values and practices that oppose God and anger Him. Practices like perversions, all kinds of perversions, like believing men can be women and women men, or same-sex relationships are good, or that people have the power to make themselves into anything they want through drugs, medical interventions, and psychological tyranny over others. Those are bad perversions, but maybe the worst perversion of all is thinking that man's way is better than God's way. There is a way that seems right to a man, says the Bible, but its end is the way of death, Proverbs 14.12. One of the men who think man's way is better than God's way is Yuval Noah Harari. I know, you regular listeners are probably getting tired of Yuval, but Yuval is a great instructor on the nature of evil and the way it propagates through the world. He probably doesn't intend to be a great instructor in that way, but slaves of Satan and high-level Satanic executives like Yuval just can't help it. They ooze evil from their pores and they spew it from their mouths. They are great resources for members of the world who want to check their minds to see if they are blindly following people who are spiritually blind, deaf, and dumb, and who are leading them away from God and the good things of God. Last week, we heard a controversial statement from Yuval that there are more people in the world than are currently needed because machines are getting better at doing our work than we are. The machines are making people redundant, so the number of people who are needed is shrinking all the time. He suggested that if we're not careful, the people who run the world may decide they don't need or want these unnecessary redundant people around any longer. Of course, Yuval is projecting the reality of today for his protection pretending that he's a good guy who's here to alert us all to the potential danger that lies ahead. This is the elitist's way of mocking us. Yuval knows very well that population reduction is what the elitist rulers crave and are working to implement because he is the senior advisor to one of the most senior executives in the elitist satanic New World Order Corporation known as the World Economic Forum. It even incorporates the term world into its title. Yuval's boss goes by the name of Klaus the Specter Schwab. As I've been saying in these podcasts, all we have to do is listen to them and use a teeny bit of godly discernment to understand the depths of their plans. So, the little clip of Yuval I played last week was just a tiny snippet from an hour-long interview he had in a TED Talk. Most of the interview was about stories, and that is the little gem of information that Yuval's going to tell us about today. He provides anyone who will listen a window into the mind of these secretive leaders who rule over us, which is the mind of Satan. Now Yuval may be evil to the core, but he's not dumb. He is a very intelligent guy. He knows a lot of true things, which enables him to be an expert at deceiving and manipulating people in a way that sounds really convincing. There's actually a lot of really good information in this interview, which I'll try to distill to just a few minutes. If you would like to hear the entire interview, I'll try to link it to the information part of the podcast. Let's start with the topic of narrative. So
1: you have this extraordinary way of connecting history with every issue that is relevant today, I think. And you, you seem to do it by the way you describe history as this history of narratives of the stories that humans have told themselves, which, which I think you argue is, is really humanity's superpower. hmm I'm curious to hear what you think of the narrative we're telling ourselves today.
2: We don't have a narrative. I mean, we are in this quite unique and frightening situation when we don't have a story to explain to ourselves what is happening in the world and where we are heading. Uh, In the 20th century, we had three big narratives, three big stories that really explained everything, the past, the present, the future... You had the fascist story, which said that the whole of human history is a struggle between nations, and one human group, one nation, one race, will violently dominate the entire world. And the second story was the communist story. Communism said, no, 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 history is not a struggle among nations, history is a struggle among classes. Everything that happened for thousands of years is a struggle among classes, and the future The communist vision for the future was that one social system will dominate the whole world, ensuring equality between all people, even at the price of freedom. And then the third story was the liberal story, which basically said history is not a struggle between nations or between classes. It's a struggle between liberty and tyranny. And the liberal vision for the future was uh, peaceful cooperation between different groups of people with some inequality, but with maximum freedom. With freedom is the main thing, and we can take inequality as the inevitable price of that. And you can see the 20th century is a struggle between these three stories. One by one, they get knocked out fascism is knocked out in the Second World War, then the Cold War knocks out communism. And at the end of the 20th century, we reach the end of history when the liberal story is the only one remaining. Uh, so, so we had these three stories and then two stories and then just one story. There is just one story that explains everything. This is the, the most reassuring situation. And then it collapses, which is what is happening over the last 10 years, five years. And we don't have a new big story that explains what is happening and where we are going.
0: So Yuval begins the interview with a story about stories. In this narrative, the story is the explanation of how society should function. According to Yuval, the functioning of society is not determined by what's true, but by which story dominates the others. One by one, the stories fall until at the beginning of the 21st century, none of them exist anymore. Now isn't that an interesting point of view? It's easy to understand how one story fell when the fascist dictatorships of Germany and Japan were defeated in the Second World War, and it's easy to understand how the second story fell when communism in general collapsed at the end of the Cold War, although it didn't disappear completely from places like China and Cuba. But what happened to capitalism? Doesn't America still exist? Doesn't the West still exist? Well, the simple answer is no, not in the eyes of the globalist elite anyway or at least not in the story that they want the public to embrace. Something mysterious happened to make America, liberty, and democracy disappear. The murderous regimes of Germany, Japan, and Soviet Russia fell, and the regime of America and the West fell as well. Very clever. Just associate America, its constitution, and liberty with violent, murderous political regimes and start again.
1: And actually, Yvonne before we go too far down the street, I I just want some more clarity on the the liberal story, Mm because the word liberal is understood differently by other people. In the UK, there's a party called the Liberals. It's it's understood differently. By liberal, you mean the term pretty broadly in a way that actually encompasses, for example, both George W. Bush, Barack Obama. Exactly. George
2: W. Bush, in historical terms, he's a liberal. Most Trump supporters are also liberals in the historical sense. I I mean, I know that in the U.S., When people say liberal, they have in mind gay marriage, gun control, abortion, all these things. But historically speaking, it's much, much broader. Define it. Okay, Maybe, maybe I'll say something about the word liberal. It simply comes from liberty. It's the idea that liberty is the most important value in the political sphere, in the economic sphere, in the personal sphere.
0: So Yuval does a very nice job defining classic liberalism. He may be on point, but he's setting up classic liberalism to be the fall guy for something
2: else. Let's find out what that is. So in the political sphere, and from a broad historical perspective, thinking in terms of centuries and not decades, if you think that political power should come from the people and not from some king or from God or something like that, then you're a liberal. And then you have the economic field. And there, the idea is that people should be free to choose their professions, their products, what to buy, what to work, uh, economic liberty. If you think that people should have the freedom to choose their own professions, their own careers, you are an economic liberal. So you have the political field, the economic field, and then you have the personal field. So here the test is, if you think that people should be free to choose whom to marry, then again, you're a liberal.
1: This is where it gets confusing. I think the term liberal a little bit for some people because people there's a lot of conservatives who would accept the first two definitions of liberal and would would embrace that. But um, perhaps until recently, many of those people would not have accepted liberal guidance on on the very personal side. And so,
2: yeah, I mean, but even if you look at the,
1: at the personal
2: field. I think even most hardline Republicans are in favor of marrying from love and from your own personal choices and are not in favor of fixed marriages. I think that most Republican voters did not marry somebody who was chosen for them without their consent and participation by their parents or by the elders. So when you get to something like gay marriage, if my choice is to marry somebody from my own gender, then some people say, "Okay, that's where the line, I I draw the line. But compared to the situation a century ago, I think that most Republican voters a century ago would have been considered like extreme hippies they would have been, like, on the extreme liberal end of the of the spectrum.
1: So there's, uh, definitely on the personal sphere, there's been this massive shift of um, opinion over mm. time. And um, you can think of the liberal story as a broad one. There's lots of detail in there. But basically, a version of that story com- encompassing politics, economics, and personal... Yes. ...became the winning ideology mm-hmm. of, say, from 1990 or whatever onwards... But, um, but it kind of, you know, after 20 years, boom, ran into massive problems. Describe what happened.
2: Um, what are the reasons is, is difficult to say, especially because many of the promises of kind of the liberal story were fulfilled. The world is still full of problems, but compared to any previous time in history, it, according to many measurements, we never had it better. I mean, if people think no liberalism has done a really bad job, we want to go back to some pre-liberal golden age, I would just like to know which year they have in mind. If you think the world of the early 21st century is a bad place to live in, what are you dreaming about? The Mm. 1950s, the 1850s? Are you dreaming about going back to the 13th century? If you look at at statistics about things like child mortality, like uh, uh, epidemics, like famine, For humans, not for the planet, not for the ecological system, but for human beings, uh, the early 21st century is the best time to live.
0: It is hard to argue with his statement that today is the best time to be alive, at least if your standard of measurement is human freedom to do whatever we want, consume whatever we want, and behave however we want. It's hard to dispute that this is the best time to live for all kinds of perversion, gluttony, greed, and idolatries, at least from the proletariat's positions. Not too many people from the past, irregular or royal, could remotely approach the lifestyle
2: of the average citizen today. You know, for two centuries... Britain and the United States and other Western powers have uh, pushed the entire world in the name of free trade and globalization because it worked very well for people in Britain and the US. And suddenly, when it works well for China and India, but works less well for the USA, they say, no, 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 forget about it. All the stuff we said about free trade and globalization, we don't want it anymore. But I think part of what is going on on maybe a deeper level of of the human mind is that people sense, a lot of people sense that they are being left behind and left out of the story even if their material conditions are still relatively good. In the 20th century, what was common to all the stories, the liberal, the fascist, the communist, is that the big heroes of the story were the common people. Not necessarily all people, But if you lived, say, I don't know, in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, life was very grim. But when you looked at the propaganda posters on the walls that depicted the glorious future, you were there. You looked at the posters which showed steelworkers and farmers in in heroic poses, and it was obvious that this is the future. Now, when people look at the posters on the walls or, or listen to TED Talks, They hear a lot of, you know, these big ideas Mm. and big words about machine learning and genetic engineering and blockchain and globalization. And and they are not there. Mm. They are no longer part of the story of the future. If I try to understand and to connect to the deep resentment of people in many places around the world, part of, of what might be going there is people that the future doesn't need me. You have all these smart people in California and in New York and in Beijing, and they are planning this amazing future with artificial intelligence and bioengineering and and global connectivity and whatnot, and they don't need me. So maybe if they are nice, they will throw some crumbs my way, like universal basic income. It's much worse psychologically to feel that you are useless than Mm. to feel that you are exploited.
0: We heard this part last week, but now we're seeing the broader context of the conversation. His hypothesis is that people would rather be exploited than feel useless, which is very convenient because our future rulers intend to exploit us in ways never before possible to put our otherwise worthless bodies to good use. After all, the exploited masses obviously prefer exploitation over uselessness,
1: right? So talk about this, because this is, this is one of the key ideas that you have been extremely articulate about. Talk about how, how you see technology shifting how things work and, and actually realizing those fears or, or risking realizing those fears even more deeply than you think people feel. Yeah.
2: So on, on one level, you know, it's, it's the economic and the military realities. Gotta love the chuckle. It's just reality, folks. Get used to it. If you go back to the middle of the 20th century... And it doesn't matter if you're in the United States with Roosevelt, or if you're in Germany with Hitler, or if you're in, in, in the USSR with Stalin, and you think about building the future, then your building materials are those millions of people who are working hard in the factories, in the farms, the soldiers in the. You need them. You don't have any kind of future without them. Um, And now fast forward to to the early 21st century, when we just don't need the vast majority of the population. Because? Because uh, the, the future is about developing more and more sophisticated technology, like, again, artificial intelligence, bioengineering. Most people don't contribute anything to that, except perhaps for their data. And whatever people are still doing, which is useful, these technologies increasingly will make redundant and will make it possible to, to replace the the people.
1: I mean, that's obviously, you know, there's a lot of debate um, about this. Some people feel that actually, technologies, including artificial intelligence, will empower people simply to do more more interesting work. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly technology can empower. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, a radiologist who, you know, here's an AI that detects um, patterns of cancer better than they do, but perhaps they can become a sort of strategist mm-hmm. and sort of... Um, you know, move their work to a higher level and figure out what is the wisest diseases to direct radiology into and, and, and use, these, use these things as tools. And therefore, the work actually gets more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the, the counter warning to that?
2: I, I agree there will be many new and exciting jobs for humans. The problem is that it's not clear that many humans will be able to do them. Um, because they will require high skills and a a lot of education. So a lot of humans will be left behind, even if there are new jobs. Again, taking the historical perspective, if you look, look back at what's happening in the 1920s and 1930s, so you have technology coming in and displacing a lot of people from traditional jobs in farming. So you don't need a hundred farmers on this farm, you just need two tractors and a couple of of, of mechanics and drivers, that's it. So you have 90 farmers displaced. But then they just move to the city, they move to Detroit or they move to Stalingrad and start working in the tractor factory. In, In that way, they are still part of the future. But what we are talking about now with the rise of of AI and machine learning and all that is that a lot of jobs will be replaced and the new jobs will demand high skills and a lot of retraining. When you left your farm in, I don't know, Minnesota and moved to Detroit to work in the factory, it's always difficult to change your profession and and your life. But to learn the job of uh, a factory hand in, in this big factory in Detroit you could do it at age 35 or 45 in a couple of weeks or a couple of months and, it, and you will be okay. And similarly, if you lose your job in the factory and you move to the supermarket, it's still possible to do that without a lot of education and without a lot of free training. But if you lose your job as a truck driver or as a factory worker and people come and say, "Ah, oh, but wonderful, we have all these new jobs, uh, uh, engineering software in California. How are you going to do that?
1: So, again, trying to desperately to sort of apply some sort of um, more hopeful spin on that.
0: Ah, Mr. Sophisticated, clueless, liberal interviewer now starts to perceive the problem. Not one to lose a beat, he is up for finding a more hopeful spin to that reality. And that context
2: brings us to the next big insight of the interview. Uh, so so we have the path of retraining people, hmm. which costs a lot of money and effort. We have the path of uh, recognizing activities like community building and like raising families as jobs that uh, maybe the government is paying for. And that also solves a lot of the problems. But for that, we need a new economic and, and social model. And this, of course, is the focus of the New World Order globalists,
0: especially those who hang out at the World Economic Forum. We need a new economic and social model, which means we need a new governmental model, too. You see, it is the government that will implement, that means impose, the new economic model, kind of like communism or
2: fascism. So I'm definitely not saying that things are hopeless. There is nothing that can be done to to stop the worst case scenarios. There There are many things we can do, but it's not going to be easy because we need a new
1: economic and
2: social model.
1: So yeah, so this question of who pays and how seems crucial because um, in the course to this future, certainly more wealth will be created, but it's going to be aggregated by the companies who are using the technology. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're losing workers and, and jobs, making their products more profitably. There's there's more wealth there, but there's no agreement on on how that wealth could ever move to, for example, pay a mother or someone who was working in a in a community. Mm-hmm. Do you see any solution to that problem other than somehow governments just insisting on on greater tax distribution from from yeah, the very that, that's
2: traditional role of government when the market isn't efficient enough in redistributing the, the the wealth then this is the job of the of the government how exactly to do that i'm not an economist so i don't know how, how to answer that it's, it's basically a political question
0: Shucks, he says. I'm not an economist, so I have no idea how that can be done. I just work for the number one man at the World Economic Forum. But let's not dwell on how wealth is handled too much. Instead, let's move on to the control of data. Yuval is big on data because data is the heart of the future, both economically and socially, which means governmentally as well. So let's hear a little bit about that.
2: It's very hard to conceptualize what it means to, to own and control your data. We have thousands of years of experience in ownership of land. So it's easy to conceptualize. I own this piece of land. I build a fence around it. There's a gate. I decide who goes in, who goes out. Very easy to conceptualize. What does it mean that I own, let's say, the, the, my medical data, my DNA, like my, my most private data possible, my DNA code? It's mine. Okay, what does it mean? I mean, unlike land, which you have just one copy of a field, it's in one place, you can't move it, you can't transmit it, nothing. With DNA, okay, I have a printout of my DNA, wonderful. It it doesn't mean anything. I mean, there could be a billion copies of my DNA in all kinds of clouds and, and, and computers and whatever. Uh, It can be used in so many ways, which I don't understand. So we we are very far from understanding what it means to Mm. own your your DNA and to have uh, reasonable models for how to allow usages that I want, like access to my my, uh, doctor from usages that I don't want. Uh, So so this is one problem. The other problem is that we are now in a situation when the the data of individual people is very valuable because it is used to hack the humanity and to train AI.
0: Got to stop him there. Your data, your very personal data, like your genetic code, is being used by others for something. (gasps) Whoopsies, that was a slip. He didn't say it could be used. He said your genetic data is being used today, actively. This is not science fiction. It's not a conspiracy theory. This is reality. And what is it being used for? To hack human beings and train AI, artificial intelligence. Your data is being used to hack human beings. If you have ever donated genetic information to Ancestry.com or any similar service, If you've ever had a genetic profile done by a hospital, if you've ever taken a COVID test at a hospital or clinic, your genetic information is being used along with millions of others to hack human beings. Hack, break into, change, alter, bring under control, eliminate if necessary.
2: Do you understand the implications of what Yuval is saying? But this is not going to stay like this for long. Once the AI is trained, and once humanity is hacked, the data of individual people is going to decrease drastically.
0: Because they won't need to obtain your DNA anymore. First, because they will already have it. And second, because the AI will already know what to do with it. They will have what they need to implement their dystopian future.
2: Hmm. And it's important because we already figured out this animal. So the, the, the next billion people, we don't really need their data anymore, no, not, not, not as much. Now is the critical time. And the really important thing about what's being accumulated, especially in the U.S. and in China, is um, the ability to hack human beings. Okay, and so- this is worth trillions and trillions, <laughs> not billions.
1: So th- this is an alarming phrase, right? The ability to hack human beings. Give, yeah. give me an example of that. What are you talking about?
2: In the abstract, the ability to hack human beings means the ability to understand humans better than they understand themselves, which means being able to predict their choices better than they can predict their choices, being able to manipulate their emotions, being able to make decisions for them. Now, I should be very clear, we are not talking about knowing humans perfectly. Mm. That's absolutely impossible, never going to happen. We're just talking about the ability to know you better than you know yourself, which is not so difficult because most people know very little about
1: themselves. And by the way, that's not all bad, right? Mm-hmm. For, for technology to know that.
0: What? In what universe do you live, Mr. Clueless announcer man? Tyrants do not need to know you perfectly. That's just a red herring. They only need to know you well enough to turn you into the most servile of slaves. All of this is beyond bad. It's catastrophic to the point where Jesus said, unless God shortened those days, no flesh would survive. Cyborgs maybe, but not flesh. And that does not mean that God is the one terminating man. It means that man has decided to play God and he isn't going to do it in a way that will be ultimately beneficial to mankind.
2: It's not completely new. Nothing is ever completely new in history. There are always precedents. So people talk about genetic engineering. Well, we have been breeding cows and chickens for thousands of years. So what's new? There, there, there is something new. What's new? I mean, the, maybe to imagine it, the borderline is the skin. Previously, almost all the information gathered on you was outside your skin. Where you go, what you buy, what you watch, what you press on your uh, TV, what you press on your keyboard. This is the, the information that flowed. But the future is about going under your skin and looking directly at what is happening in your heart, in your brain, what is your blood pressure, which parts of your brain are activated now. And this can be done either with invasive technologies like uh, electrodes implanted inside your body, but more and more with external devices from a a ring or a bracelet on your arm, which measures biometric points of, of information, Or um, there are now devices that just by looking at your face from a camera, they can tell what's happening to your blood pressure, to your heart rate, things like that. And this is extremely good clues for understanding your emotional state. So it can go in the direction of, uh, you know, full blown totalitarian regimes like North Korea, forcing every citizen in say 10 years or 20 years to wear a biometric bracelet, which constantly monitors not where you go and what you say, it monitors what's happening in your heart and in your brain. If you walk into a room and there is a picture of Kim Jong-un on the wall, and the bracelet picks up the, the signs of anger because it has access to your brain, uh, that's very bad news for you. Even George Orwell's 1984, they couldn't really get into your brain. There was still this sphere of, of, of a private world. And, and this is about to disappear. In the West, the main concern now is what is known as surveillance capitalism. That, okay, um, it's not a kind of dictator that that spies on your brain, but you have all these corporations and maybe all these government agencies which are monitoring what's happening inside your body. What does it mean to live Mm. in a world when your inner reality is so completely exposed? You've all skirted the real technologies that are being rolled out to monitor your
0: inside world. The future is not in bracelets and band-aids on the skin. The future is in nanobots that assemble circuitry within your body, in your tissues, and inside your brain, that communicate with external devices that surround you all day, every day, on every side. What kind of future do you think you're going to have when your inner thought is monitored by the thought Nazis? What will your life be like when you're guilty for simply thinking something, or for almost thinking something, with no option for an appeal? When the government gives you two choices, either submit to ever-increasing intrusion into your body and an endless adventure of body replacement and monitoring, or be eliminated, what are you going to do? What will your children do? With enough control, the New World Order leaders won't even need to make a threat. They could just kill us at will, or make us terminate ourselves, or make us do whatever they want us to do. Whatever they want us to do. And that future is brought to you by AI and biometric monitoring.
2: We we need to differentiate two types of power in history. You have the power over objective reality, like to build bridges or cure diseases or building an atom bomb. And then you have the power over humans and their subjective feelings or imagination, making them believe in something. Now, for most activities, you need both. Let's say you want to build an atom bomb. So on the one hand, you need a good theory of physics. If you don't understand physics well enough, you will not be able to build an atom bomb. And here, we are not dealing with fictional stories. We are dealing with more accurate or less accurate scientific theories. And I I definitely believe in scientific objectivity and truth in that sense. But on the other hand, in order to build an atom bomb, a good understanding of physics is not enough. You also need people to cooperate to mine uranium and build reactors and, and clean after you, uh, the, all the scientists have lunch. So somebody needs to clean the dishes. You need people to cooperate on this. And for that, you need a story. You will not get millions of people cooperating by telling them E equals MC square. Now let's build an atom. Ad- no. What? And the story you tell them need not be true at all. It could be complete nonsense and still it would be effective in making them cooperate. Now, still, I would say there are good stories and bad stories you can tell people in that situation. The measurement would be how much suffering it causes or alleviates.
1: So, so something, therefore, something like human rights, which is a human construction and in mm-hmm. one sense a fiction, but as measured by an attempt to alleviate suffering. is It actually... was a very good story. A really powerful story. Yes,
2: not just powerful, but but a very good one. But it's also dangerous to confuse a story we have constructed in a particular historical setting and think that we can just apply it Hmm. to any other historical period or to any other political and geographical location today in the world.
0: So to Yuval, the historian, history is about power, scientific theories and stories. The purpose of life is power. The path to power is understanding the physical world around us and then telling stories to get other people to do what we need them to do. The stories need not be true as long as they do the trick. And that, my friends, is the valuable nugget we get from this interview. It is the coup de grace that should fell any idea you might have that these people have your best interests in mind. Satan has three main attributes. He is a liar and the father of lies, John 8.44, and he is a thief and a murderer, John 10.10. His people, particularly his leaders, reflect his attributes. Yuval states casually as a fact that we tell stories to gain power, and some stories are better than others. And they don't have to be true stories. Maybe the best stories are the ones that aren't true. Anyone, anyone who promotes lying as a legitimate means of swaying public opinion and achieving power is a person who cannot and should not be trusted in any way. We should believe the worst about that person, And we should be on our toes when it comes to anything that person says and anything that is said or done by anyone with whom that person closely associates. Through the World Economic Forum, that would include pretty much all the leaders of this world, senior officials of governments of this world, and business leaders of this world. So last episode, we read a bit about Microsoft patent number 2020 and its technology, which included biometric monitoring devices inside human bodies for the purpose of verifying body activity data that are associated with digital currencies. So let's go to the news this week and see how it might tie together with the insights from last week. Headline, August 25th, Natural News via the Epoch Times. Scientists discover that all COVID vaccines, without exception, contain mysterious metallic toxins. It reads, Independent researchers from Germany have found the Wuhan coronavirus vaccines contain an array of hidden toxic components, most of them metallic, that are not labeled as ingredients. Without exception, the group says every sample tested from Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and AstraZeneca contained the following metallic elements alkali metals, cesium and potassium, alkaline earth metals, calcium and barium, transition metals, cobalt, iron, chromium and titanium, rare earth metals, cerium and gadolinium, mining group metal, aluminum, and silicone and sulfur. The researchers determined that all of these metallic substances are visible under the dark field microscope as distinctive and complex structures of different sizes and cannot be explained as contamination from the manufacturing process. Dr. Jancy Lindsay, a Ph.D. toxicologist who was not involved in the study but has performed similar work, says there is indeed a pattern of discovery that suggests the COVID injections are not what the government claims they are. Quote, The number and consistency of the allegations of contamination alone, coupled with the eerie silence from global safety and regulatory bodies, is troublesome and perplexing in terms of transparency and continued allegations by these bodies that the genetic vaccines are safe. The study goes on to say, Using a small sample of live blood analyses from both vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals, we have determined that artificial intelligence can distinguish with 100% reliability between the blood of the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. In other words, the vaccines are changing the blood of vaccinated individuals in ways that can be detected with nearly perfect reliability. This is consistent with the findings of La Quinta Columna in Spain, and Japanese researchers who also found evidence of metallic materials in the vaccines they studied. Two of those materials are graphene oxide and a similar material called graphene hydroxide. Both are magnetic and are controllable through the application of magnetic and microwave radiation. These materials appear to have the ability to self-assemble into structures within human bodies. Whistleblowers from around the world, like mortician Richard Hirschman of Alabama and pathologist Dr. Ryan Cole of Boise, Idaho, have reported strange clots in the veins and arteries of suddenly deceased individuals. Mr. Hirschman was interviewed by Mike Adams, founder of Brighteon.com, a free speech website, and Natural News, a free speech news aggregator. Mr. Adams also owns a company that provides high-quality natural foods and operates a certified laboratory to document the purity of the foods they sell. Mr. Hirschman approached Mr. Adams about the strange clots he's finding while embalming bodies, and was subsequently interviewed by Mr. Adams when he guest-hosted a broadcast on InfoWars. Let's listen to part of that interview, during which Mr. Adams used a high-powered optical microscope to examine the clot structure.
3: We're going to be joined in just a minute by Richard Hirschman, the embalmer, who has been seeing these uh, outrageous clots, and he, in fact, provided these clots to me the clots that we have brought here today to the studio and we showed you in the previous hour. If you missed that, you've got to go back and see those live microscopy photos of these clots because these are not blood clots, folks. These are not blood clots. So you keep hearing the term blood clots and that people are dying from blood clots or that people are are having symptoms from blood clots. These are not normal blood clots. These are tissues, it's some kind of structure that is growing or is being built inside the vessels, the blood vessels and the arteries. And this is not normal. This has never happened before that we know of. And here to give us more details about his observations is Richard Hirschman, who first noticed these. And uh, he's been working with Dr. Jane Ruby, who also joins us in the next segment to try to you know expose what's happening. So uh, Mr. Hirschman, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. You are live on the broadcast now. Uh, how's how's your Monday so far?
4: Uh, seems crazy, Mike. It really does.
3: Yeah, it is crazy. Well, uh, you, thanks to you sending me these uh, clot samples, uh, all kinds of people are kind of freaking out about what's going on. So uh, show us. I, I understand you have some other vials there as well. Show us what you have collected and then walk us through how are you collecting these samples because a lot of people are very skeptical about where these have come from. So please tell us the
0: procedure, how you're getting these, these clot samples. For the audio podcast, you don't get the visual effect of the clots that Mr. Hirschman is showing in the video broadcast. They are long, white, fibrous materials that look like white rubber. The clots are filamented of various lengths and widths and look much like worms. They vary in diameter from thread size to the size of a pencil.
4: Sure. I, uh, when we embalm, we typically push fluid into an artery. This is an example of one of the five, uh that I've got. And we, we, for, we, we force chemicals, formaldehyde, into the body, and then um, we allow the blood to drain out uh, through a drain tube. And most of the time, a lot of times, they just they just they just come out of the body without having to be pulled. But sometimes they start blocking the vessels, and we have to put in some forceps in order to pull these out in order to allow the blood to continue to flow out of the body so that we can replace it
3: so with. What- let me be clear you're 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 pushing embalming fluid into the the vascular system and then in many cases as you said these clot structures are just coming out on their own through the drain tube
4: yes and some and and when they're and when we when it gets clogged up when because some of these get really large uh, then we have to go in and try to try to manually pull them or help them out so that way uh, the blood continue to flow and, and the preservative can be added to the body.
3: Now, I I want to, by the way, I've got a lot of questions for you, but I want to thank you for your courage. You are a true, oh, my goodness. Okay.
4: The, the sample. So it's not just a hit and miss now. I see it all the time.
3: Well, the fact that you're doing this and, and that you, you sent me samples and that you're willing to go public and use your name and talk about this is uh, quite noteworthy in this age of medical repression and you know, scientific uh, authoritarianism. No one's allowed to talk about these things. But let me ask you then, as you, in your experience as an embalmer, first of all, how, for how many years have you been engaged in this practice?
4: Yes. Well, I remember during my apprenticeship, I remember being in the funeral home when 9-11 happened. So at least 20 years.
3: And then how many embalming procedures would you say, just an estimate that you have carried out over those roughly two decades?
4: That's a lot. Um, In the beginning, when I worked for just one funeral home, we typically handled about somewhere between 100 to 150 bodies a year. Then I went uh, in 2005 and worked for a corporation at a, at a centralized embalming facility where there were three of us and we embalmed nearly a thousand bodies a year. And uh, you know, now I'm a trade embalmer since 2015 and I would, um, I, I, I embalmed probably, probably over 400 bodies a year now.
3: Uh, so, so it's fair to say come. you've done thousands of these procedures over your career. Easily. Absolutely. Now, Easily. before the vaccines came out, these mRNA vaccines, before that time, had you ever seen these kinds of clot structures that we are now finding you know, very fre- frequently? No. Um, I
4: did notice an increase in blood clotting during the uh, peak of the COVID stuff. However, um, after the vaccine rolled out, and I'm going to I'm estimating and guessing on exactly when I started to, you know, kind of put my finger on, hey, something's different. That would have been around May or June of last year, 2021.
0: This is important because if you do a fact check of Mr. Hirschman, two sites pop up immediately. Factcheck.org and pointer.org. The articles on both of these sites are identical because they're written, ostensibly, by the same person, Nassim Ferdowsi. As you might expect, these websites rate the claims of Mr. Hirschman false. As part of their proof, they cite licensed embalmer Monica Torres of NXT Generation Mortuary Support in Phoenix, who said, Abnormal clots were found in COVID-19 victims long before vaccinations were available, and it's not uncommon to find dark blood clots in any deceased not just COVID persons, who have been stored in refrigeration for a long period of time before embalming. The article's primary evidence is that blood clotting is a well-established effect from COVID or from storage, thereby implicating COVID or storage as the cause of these clots. But the fact-check article is talking about blood clots. The clots Mr. Hirschman pulls out of bodies are not blood clots. He knows what a blood clot is, and these aren't them. If you want to see what Mr. Hirschman is pulling out of the bodies, go to the links below and look at the video. We'll stop there because Mr. Hirschman is not the only mortician to notice these structures. All the way across the pond in Great Britain, mortician and whistleblower John O'Looney has found the same thing. This is a worldwide problem, not just here in the United States. In an interview with the Atlantic Underground podcast, Mr. O'Looney provided a number of insights not only into his personal observations of the clots, but regarding the medical tyranny that has plagued Great Britain now for the better part of
5: two years. Let's hear some of what Mr. O'Looney has to say. Hello, our truth warriors. Well, today's guest has braved stepping out to tell the people what he is seeing in the funeral business and has felt the force of the pushback for his efforts. Here to talk about the big changes and the unusual goings-on, it's my fellow Englishman, John O'Looney, my good man. Welcome to the Atlantic Underground podcast.
6: Thanks for having me
5: on, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, no, it's a pleasure. John, if you could tell our listeners and viewers here about your job role and what a typical day includes for you.
6: No problem. So, my name's John O'Looney, I run my own funeral home. I've been uh, an undertaker for around 15 years now. The first 10 years were spent working for one of the largest funeral providers in the UK, which is cooperative funeral care. Um, Now, the first five years are really good and then the co-operative bank collapsed a few years ago um, uh, very conveniently for the forces at work now because the, the massive debt obviously buys compliance but basically as soon as the bank collapsed they were pulling money out of funeral care to try and prop the bank up and it was all about money so I left uh, five years ago now and I've been running my own funeral home ever since because um, I don't think that people are funeral numbers you know it's yeah. about looking after them like you would do yourself um, and I I, I just can't work on an industrial scale I don't think it's right you know everyone's an individual so we've been here five years um, doing things the way we want to do it and it's worked out really well to be honest with you you know uh, people are just like mirrors really aren't they much like a mirror you look into it and what do you get you get exactly what you put put in you know and people are just the same so
5: yeah that's no, great. We had our good friend uh, Max Egan on on Wednesday with us, and this is where people first saw you talking about the problems that you started seeing. How have things changed since then?
6: Well, um, I think what I've said has been well documented. And, and um, hello, Matt, for a gentleman, what a lovely guy. He's, he sacrificed everything for other people, you know, and that should be remembered. He's a hero. Of, of our age, I, I believe, um, because my message is a message, but about people like him and people like yourself, we can't tell it to the people. So so what's happened, really? Well, last September, I went for a meeting in Westminster with a guy called Sir Graham Brady, who's the Commissioner of the 1922 Committee. Uh, committee. He's a very senior Tory politician. He's the guy that just got rid of Boris Johnson um, and is overseeing the next um, two World Economic Forum puppets, Uh, one of which they're going to select in place to carry on the carnage. Um, uh, I think we all know that in our hearts. Um, So so I kind of went there. We all had about 10 minutes. I was there with about 18 other people amongst, uh, I mean, The Guardian, uh, one of the media outlets, I don't need them because they just talk rubbish, is um, reported us as a group of anti-vaxxers. Let me be clear here. I've had every vaccine that I've ever been offered. I've traveled to Africa and Thailand, uh, and I've had the relevant jabs and injections without complaint. But um, I was never going to have this because I sensed something was wrong, something wasn't right. Um, And again, I've, I've uh, I've kind of delved into that and explained why in other videos. But it was announced at that meeting by a number of people that were there that were you know far far more expert than me exactly what would happen that young people would die in large numbers they would get sick and ill and die and they would call it other variants as these people got sick and that's exactly what's happened so the number of people uh, the ons data that was released for july um, uh, by the Gov- british government says there's an 18 and percent increase in death rate yeah over the part um, and that's historically over the last five years um, this year, we're seeing an 18.5% increase. That's only the numbers that they care to print and admit. But I can tell you as a funeral director, we've been far busier than we should be. And I'm hearing that more and more babies uh, to vaccinate mothers are, are dying um, they're, they're prematurely uh, being born and they're, they're being born stillborn. And that that's been confirmed to me by a number of people. So usually, as a funeral director, we don't charge anything for um, doing a funeral for a child, because I refuse to profit from the death of a child. Yeah, it's that simple. I've never ever want to do it. I pay for the coffin out of my own pocket, and my services are free. And and things like the cremation, um, uh, the the crematorium claim that back from the government. So so you know, um, if the costs are minimal anyway, but I cover them all. Um, I'm hearing about all these babies dying, but the phone isn't actually ringing, which I thought was quite strange and Then I went to the crematorium about a month ago and noticed a baby name on the board uh, in the waiting room, so every crematorium will have a waiting room, and in that waiting room quite often there is an information board and the the idea of that is to feed information to members of the public that come in who perhaps haven't been there before, not quite sure if they've got the right chapel, so it lists the name of the deceased and the time the funeral is taking place and more importantly the arranging funeral director underneath that name and we're seeing more and more baby names on there and the arranging funeral director is the local hospital so what's happening is the hospital is ferrying babies directly to the crematorium and in large numbers we got speaking to a member of staff at the crematorium he told us they're bringing them in six and eight at a time
0: in another video interview, Mr. O'Looney said having the hospital act as funeral director was not a normal procedure in Great Britain. It's a new phenomenon, like so many of these other new phenomenon, and it was done, apparently, to mask the large increase in the number of babies that are dying in the hospital or being born dead. The medical industry today seems much more concerned to hide information from the general public than to identify problems that might negatively reflect on the jabs.
6: That's what's happening with this—the damage these gene therapies are doing. These mRNAs are deadly, deadly things. They're not vaccines, and it was, you know, uh, widely acknowledged at the meeting what was going to happen. I saw reams and reams of evidence. Thump onto the table in front of Sir Graham. He looked shaken. He knew the truth. We we could all tell that he knew what was going on. He admitted that it was above his pay grade and there was nothing he could do, but he would try, but he couldn't guarantee anything and nothing's happened. You know, now they're targeting babies and the most gullible, vulnerable people who have had jab after jab and they're consistently getting what they think is COVID. It's not, it's, it's probably a common cold. Um, but they, their immune system is decimated and they can't fight it off. So in their mind, they're repeatedly getting COVID and they've been very open, haven't they? And said, you know, well, it doesn't stop you getting it. It doesn't stop. Well, I can tell you, I don't suffer from COVID. Um, I, you know, I was targeted before Christmas, but I don't, uh, you know, I've, I've washed and dressed hundreds of COVID victims, that people that have been labeled with COVID. Who, the reality is they're cancer patients, dementia patients, heart attack victims, that kind of thing. Um. Uh, many of them I've picked up still warm because the doctors yeah. wouldn't attend deaths and they weren't doing a COVID test, but every one of them was labeled as a COVID death. You know, It was total rubbish, just rubbish. Everybody knows. Everybody's very frightened, I can tell you. Some are in denial. Some have been triple jabbed. And I suspect they're mentally bought into the narrative, whether there's something in these jabs that, that alters the mindset of people, I really don't know.
0: Just as the thousands of doctors and medical professionals have been saying, Almost every person who died during the so-called pandemic was labeled a COVID death even when it was blatantly another kind of a death. These mislabeled deaths were not just a handful that slipped through a carefully planned and methodical approach to the death certification process. They were part of wholesale fraud to inflate the numbers of COVID deaths. Why? To scare people. And why scare people? to get them to take the biological weapon that was fraudulently labeled a vaccine. The primary goal of every government on Earth, except Russia and China, with the help of the media and all big businesses, but especially those that are owned by BlackRock and Vanguard, which is just about all big businesses, has been to strong-arm people into getting the shot, the jab, not just once, but over and over and over. And the people who are doing this do not like whistleblowers like Mr. O'Looney. They become targets.
5: let's go back to before Christmas I know you had a spell in hospital and the experience was not yes possible. yeah can you can you tell us about what happened there
6: no, it, it, yeah it was horrifying Now I'd, I'd heard about the experiences people were happening were having uh, and I had actually got contacted by a lady a couple of weeks before I fell ill. Uh, I had loads of people reach out to me. One of them sticks in my mind was from British Secret services and he was a communications guy, not a double agent. Yeah, anything like that, and and he went into great detail about what he felt was going to happen, what he'd heard through the information that he passes from one department to another, um, and he warned me that I would be targeted because he'd heard my name mentioned in dispatches or emails or whatever. Uh, and lo and behold, three weeks later, I fell ill was short of breath. Now, I'd spoke to a woman a couple of weeks before I said that um, the ambulance service ter- turned up, and she was unjabbed, she was felt breathless, and they attacked her. And i never doubted her you know i felt quite sorry for her and she told me this story and, and yeah the ambulance actually was stopped on the a5 because she kicked off and rung the police because they pulled the mask off her um, because she wasn't jabbed you know which is absolutely sadistic you know why any anyone pretending to be a paramedic would do that to someone who's short of breath is beyond me but i had a very similar experience um, so i felt um, short of breath i didn't feel particularly unwell but all of a sudden i started feeling short of breath and um, I felt like I'd been burnt or poisoned in honesty. So the uh, I was in touch with a number of GPs uh, who uh, is a growing number who are defecting from the GMC and operating outside the GMC because the GMC, the General Medical Council is finished. Um, they've got, have lost the confidence of its staff. It's just a yeah. mafia that they have to be part of. And they know that, they know that. That's why they bully these doctors into euthanizing people which is what it is now so i went into hospital i had three lateral flow tests all of them were negative uh, and you know these are tests that they've put people on um, palliative care starved them to death on the basis of the results of these but i was told that i didn't have covid three times three tests so yes. i was then taken up to the ward anyway because obviously my sacks were low my short i was short of breath. i had a uh, following morning this was early hours of the morning so the following morning a consultant sat on the end of the bed and he announced that he was going to save my life uh, and you know you're like oh god here we go and I knew what was coming they offered me remdesivir so oh. I kind of said um yeah I kind of said no I'm not taking it he said what do you mean I said well let's uh, I said firstly I said can you explain what clinical benefit um remdesivir will have for me I said and also um I've Brought up the side effects here on my phone and thank god i took my phone in i said it says um i'm going to be wheezy i'm going to be shortness of breath difficulty swallowing kidney function liver function if i take rendesivir can you explain how that's going to be uh, helpful to a respiratory patient and he just got up off the bed and he walked away he didn't even want to enter into the discussion and he, he was muttering oh, I'm, I'm only doing what i'm told uh, and i never saw that that's a consultant in a british hospital so the following uh, or the same day later in the afternoon i had a young girl sit on the edge of the bed i say young she was probably she was painfully skinny very painfully skinny blonde girl and she unnerved me because she couldn't look me in the eye now um, by that i'm looking at the camera now that's looking you in the eye I'm talking to you she was talking to me like this she couldn't make any eye contact at all and the reason for that is because what she knew she was doing was very wrong um, so she offered me two drugs. One of them was called baricitinib and the other one was called, uh, and you can Google these and the side effects are very much the same as remdesivir, difficulty breathing, um, tightness in the chest, blood, high blood pressure, shortness of breath, kidney function, liver function, the very thing that people allegedly have COVID die from. Now, Anthony Fauci used remdesivir extensively in Africa, uh, some years ago. It's well documented. He was doing similar sort of PCR tests on babies, newborn babies in Africa. And if he got a positive result, he judged that they were suffering from Ebola, uh, whether they were asymptomatic or not. He then proceeded to feed these babies remdesivir. Now, the mortality rate in those babies that he gave remdesivir to was 53%. And they Mm -hmm. died primarily from kidney and liver failure. Exact same thing that people treated with remdesivir for COVID. I dined from in British hospitals, you know, so, so I pretty much knew what they wanted was a prominent anti-vaxxer to die from COVID, that's what they wanted, but I had too much in me, whatever they zapped me with or poisoned me with, they didn't quite give me a good enough dose, because I can tell you, if they um, had anesthetized me or, or put some midazolam down me so I couldn't talk, uh, they'd have just fed me, I'd have died, I would have been there COVID death, but I clung on and I had too much strength, um, and I kind of said, no, I want out, I went out because I knew what they were doing. I watched the two guys in there I mean they put me on a covid board. I didn't even have covid. <laughs> you know, free I yeah, my missus had free tests as well. All were negative. We had six tests, six official NHS issued tests between us. We we're all negative, you know. So so I know. I was told by uh, Uh, British intelligence I would be targeted the guy told me three weeks prior and lo and behold that's what they wanted because I was gathering traction and people were listening to me because they know if you talk to someone you can tell if these people are being sincere or not you know you listen to a politician they talk utter bollocks and it's quite obvious they talk utter bollocks you know when was when was the last time we had a politician elected who kept a single promise A single pre-election promise. And I would say to people, do you know what? It's time that we um, fundamentally changed politics, got rid of all of the politicians, and simply present half a dozen policies and vote for policies. Because policy isn't corruptible. These scumbags, these WEF scumbags certainly are.
0: WEF, World Economic Forum. The whole world is waking up to the very personal connection between prominent politicians all over the world and the World Economic Forum. They were trained by the WEF. They get funding through WEF-affiliated companies and organizations. They attend secret meetings as WEF delegates at their conferences. So Mr. O'Looney survived the routine attempt to get anyone who ends up in the hospital with COVID to take remdesivir, a drug that Anthony Fauci has a financial interest in getting administered to as many patients as possible, and which is the only drug that has been approved by the FDA for treatment in the hospital. I know this is what the hospitals are doing, because that's exactly what happened to me when I ended up in the hospital from dehydration while I had COVID. Just like Mr. O'Looney, they tried several times to get me to take remdesivir. I told them flat out that I wouldn't take it, and I didn't need it. I just needed to escape when they didn't want to release me. Fortunately, I'm nobody, so they eventually let me out. But there's more that we should hear from this interview from Mr. O'Looney, specifically about his mortician
5: practice. Now, I saw a video showing the recent open heart surgery where they opened up the main artery and pulled out that yeah. large black substance from it. Is this different to the normal buildups people mm. get when they, you know, say have a bypass, you know, what are we yeah, seeing? Yeah,
6: yeah. So, so uh, these things that jab you know, recipients are getting inside them and not blood clots, they're behaving like blood clots in that they block the arteries and hence the flow of blood around those arteries, so the person dies. Um, it, they, so in that way they behave very very much the same. But what you're seeing, what we're seeing inside people is is this, and it's like a white calamari. This has turned slightly dark because it's been stored in formaldehyde and it blackens a little bit. But you yeah. can see, uh, and these were pulled out of a 30 year old lad um, we had in a few weeks ago. Now we were waiting for the planets to align kind of thing, what we, we needed was a young lad in uh, who died suddenly or a young girl in, a youngster that would died too, obviously blatantly too early at 30. He yeah. didn't have an ounce of fat on him. He had no comorbidities. Um, he'd had a post-mortem and then the family asked us to embalm him to keep him in good condition. So let me explain. During the uh, post-mortem process, what they do is they cut you from your abdomen to your neck. They take all your organs out, they weigh them, they take blocks and slides, and then they place these organs in a bag and it's put back in you very much the same way for want of a better word of giblets, you know? So uh, when you embalm someone that's had their, their uh, internal organs that pulled out and ripped out, clearly the um, circulatory system has been compromised, you know? So you can't just connect an embalming pump like you would on what's called a straight case, someone that hasn't had a post So we took, we opened him up, we took the organs out, and then we manually target all the severed arteries. So for example, the two ephemerals, you see them they're at the top of the legs inside an empty cavity and you target them with the embalming pump. Now, when we offered the pump up, it's like a little L shaped nozzle. We couldn't get it in there because it's full of this stuff, full of this, this white calamari kind of stuff. Um, they're not blood clots. Now when you pull them out, they're red because they're covered in blood, but when they're washed off, they're very elastic and have the similar consistency to calamari. And what they do is they grow inside the veins and arteries and gradually fill those arteries. So it looks like a natural death, like blood clot or a stroke or a heart attack, but in ever younger people. Now, uh, this is the theory that is becoming more and more apparent. We've seen record numbers of young footballers and young sportsmen fall over and die in numbers never seen before. These are people that are scrutinized. Every ligament on them is scrutinized because they're worth hundreds of millions of pounds. Now, if I open up 10 people right? Some of them will have um, uh, arteries like a, as thick as that pen, others will have arteries like my little finger, and everything in between, you know, so, so we've got a wide scope of people with different size arteries and vessels, some of them are big, some of them are small and everything in, in, in between. If you had 10 children all the same age, they all grow at different rates. So it's a fair assumption to say that whatever this white stuff is that's growing inside them, post vaccine, it's growing in different people at different rates. So my feeling is, and and the growing number of doctors and scientists suspect that when the planets align and you've got someone who produces this stuff particularly quickly, and they've got narrow arteries, that's why they're falling over and dying first. And that's why we're seeing an ever growing number of youngsters um, falling over and dying, you know? Um, So if you've got very narrow arteries and you're very good at growing this crap, whatever it is inside you, you're gonna die. You're going to die, and that's that's the that's the bottom line. And I'm noticing that they're clutching at straws, looking at histology. Did he have a drug habit? Was he a smoker? Do you know, a- anything they possibly can. But it's the it's there, hanging out of their arteries. You know yeah. what can't they see? Yeah. And I raised the alarm really, just really to to see what their response was, and if it acknowledged why they'd missed that. You know. And I kind of said, look, I've got a sample here. I can send it off. And that she suggested to me that that grew in someone postmortem after death yeah no. things, don't, things don't grow inside your body once you die the only thing that die, uh, grows in your body is mold as your body breaks down you know yeah. and, and, and and so it's clear to me that for whatever reason these people are not allowed to discuss this because i mean i there's a, a guy called richard hirschman who's an alabama based um embalmer he's a wonderful guy i spoke to him many times he's uh, a trade embalmer so he goes to many funeral homes and he does embalming on a much larger scale than we do and he's got a bag with hundreds of samples in from jab recipients and they're identical to that they're identical and i saw that before i found this because that's what made me want to look because we were struggling to embalm jab recipients you know we found a fluid wasn't going around very well whereas we usually would make one incision in the neck we were having to do both sides of the neck and in the groin and under the arms in all of the major arteries to get the fluid around them because they're blocked up With this crap inside them.
0: As Mr. O'Looney said, what can't they see? Well, I guess that depends on where a person stands and what the person is willing to accept. For God said, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. I don't harp on the bioweapon shots because I know it's disturbing to many people. If you took them, you took them. And there isn't much point in obsessing over it now. But we still need to see the truth. That will help us from taking any more shots and, for heaven's sakes, don't give them to your children under any circumstances. If you get to the point where you regret taking them, reach out to someone who understands and wants to help. Many people don't want to consider the possibility that their own government is complicit in the release of bioweapons against our own population because it's too psychologically overwhelming to accept. It's much easier psychologically to believe it can't be this bad That the world's governments cannot have been captured this effectively. That our government and our pharmaceutical companies cannot be at the center of this massive and deep and evil. That's the genius of developing this kind of bioweapon. They spent years, decades, building a reputation of care and concern for human health. Developing a level of trust and dependency that is unprecedented in history. It is this bad. And we need to keep as many people as possible from succumbing to whatever nefarious designs these demons intend to inflict. One way we can do this is to study God's word and listen to what he has to tell us about the times we're in. In the last episode, we read the first letter of Revelation, chapter 2, that was directed to the church at Ephesus. It is a letter from Jesus Christ to the people who will live at the start of the end times, and the church Jesus is writing to is the church universal at that specific time in history. Jesus wrote the letter to warn his beloved church because the people who comprise the church at that time will have to face some very specific challenges. Jesus expects his church to overcome those challenges, and he provides instructions on how to overcome them, as well as the consequences for failing to overcome them. This week, we're going to compare the prophecy of the church at Ephesus with two other parallel prophecies that provide additional detail into the problem that the church will have to overcome. These parallel prophecies are found in Matthew chapter 24 verses 4 and 5 and Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. Let's start by reading the prophecy of the letter to the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2 verses 2 to 6. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly, and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So the key ideas here include that there is a problem that has affected the church at this time in history. The first problem is that there are plenty of evil people around and the church rightly cannot bear them, meaning letting them affect the proper operation of the church. They can't let them affect the proper operation of the church. Think of the current state of affairs, where the LGBT community has recruited the help of academia, school systems, corporations, and even the government to flood our culture and churches with every vile and detestable form of evil that God forbade early in the Bible. The same kinds of evils that got the nations of the Middle East evicted by Israel. But this church has not succumbed to the desires to practice transgenderism, homosexuality, abortion, witchcraft, and the worship of self and comfort and power. It hates those things. But there is another problem, a more immediate problem. There are people who claim to be apostles, which means delegate or messenger, people who have been sent out with orders to do something, and these messengers are peddling a message that is troubling the church. It is a message that is not Christian in nature, not theological, and lies outside the expertise of the church. The church leaders rightly scrutinize the message to determine if it's valid and through testing conclude that the message is not valid, that the people who have brought it are lying, and so they reject the message. However, this process takes time, during which the church stopped doing something it normally does. It stopped doing Christianity properly. It left its first love. Jesus commands the church to repent and do its job as it normally does, or he will punish it by separating the Holy Spirit from the church. Now, let's read the same problem as phrased in Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. This section of Matthew records Jesus' response to the disciples' question about what will be the signs of his second coming of the end times. That's the context. So, the first thing that Christians who are alive in the end times need to know is that people will come with a deceptive message, just like in the letter to the Ephesians. In fact, many people will come with that message in the name of Jesus, saying, I am the Christ. What does that mean? Jesus is a Savior. So coming in his name, saying they are the Savior, means they're coming with a message of salvation relative to a problem that's affecting the whole world. You have a problem, and we, or I, have the answer that will save you. The term Christ means anointed. Today, rather than anointed, we might say appointed by an authority. So people come who are appointed by an authority to deliver a deceptive message, which is a message of salvation from something. And we should not assume it's our sin because that's not likely the thing that these people are being saved from. It's much more likely in a technological era like today that it's a dangerous situation that threatens the lives or health of the people of the world. Say something like a pathogen or a pandemic. And these people say, look, we have the solution to this thing that's threatening you or your health and we're going to save your life. Take this shot. It's safe and effective. And what does the prophecy of Revelation 6 have to say about this same event? And I looked, and behold, a white horse! He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. This is all symbology. White in the Bible symbolizes purity, honor, and prestige. A horse, in John's day, was not a normal animal to have around. They were very expensive and were primarily used by two groups of people. Royalty and military commanders. They were also used by senior warriors operating from chariots. Horses symbolize great authority and, most of the time, warfare. Whoever is sitting in this position of great authority on a horse was carrying a bow, which is a weapon of war used at a distance, as opposed to the more usual weapon of war of that age, which was a sword or a spear used at close range. A bow is an indirect weapon of warfare. Now, many Bible commentators will make a big deal that this person does not have any arrows, and from that they conclude that this person must be a great peacemaker in disguise. But that stretches the limits of not only the text, but of credibility. He is sitting on an animal of war, carrying a weapon of war. The fact that John doesn't call out the arrows like he was watching an American Western does not mean there were no arrows. If I said a soldier went out with a rifle, would you assume he had no bullets just because I didn't say he had bullets? Of course not. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So this person of power and authority, who, by the way, is riding a white horse and is passing himself off as good and virtuous, he is wielding a weapon that is used at a distance. The verse continues, And a crown was given to him. Now, we read this in English and we assume it's a king's crown, but that's not what the word means. In the Greek, it's the word stephanos, which means a wreath worn on the head that was given to the victor of the games. It's like a trophy. The word diadema or diadem in English is the word for the crown of a king. So this person of authority was given a crown of victory of some sort. In other words, he was successful at what he set out to do. And the verse concludes, And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now the word conquering is the Greek word nikeo, and it means to carry off the victory or be victorious or win. So putting it all together, we have in this verse a person of power and authority who's passing himself off as somebody virtuous, but not necessarily a ruler, who goes out into the world with an indirect weapon that he wields at a distance in order to win a victory, and he succeeds. And the victory is probably an indirect one, meaning it's not directly seen. So now, putting all three parallel passages together, we have a person of power and authority who wields a weapon at a distance which creates some kind of panic and crisis in society. The crisis, which likely involves death, is so bad that it affects the way that churches operate, like maybe shutting down for a time, for example. This is a real weapon that inflicts real death and requires some kind of solution which is offered by other people of authority who claim they have the answer that will save people's lives but these people are lying and deceiving the people who listen to them. Nevertheless, most people believe them. The leaders of the church congregations that overcome carefully examine what they're being told by the authorities and determine that they're being told a lie. They return to normal operations and resume doing what churches are designed to do, which is evangelize, minister to the needy, and raise up people in the faith the leaders of the church congregations that do not overcome, believe the lies of the authority figures who say they have the answer to the problem confronting society, pander to those authorities, promote those authorities, and get distracted from the mission of the church. But a secret weapon has been successfully deployed which is not the solution to the problem that the saviors of society have claimed. It is a hidden weapon wielded at a distance. Last week, we saw how this time period we're in today is the first time in history when all the requirements of the end times could potentially be realized. This era began only a few years ago, which means the events of the end times could begin at any time. This first event that is described in Revelation 2, Matthew 24, and Revelation 6 is one of six events that will predate the unleashing of God's wrath on the world. This first event is not God's doing. It's man's doing, which means it is Satan's doing. This is Satan moving against the world through the institutions of the world. I suggest that it is quite possible that the disrupting event that got the church off track was the emergence of COVID-19. It was a worldwide crisis that definitely changed how most churches operated and interfered with their normal operations. Saviors came preaching salvation through vaccinations which were supposedly developed over a long weekend using uploaded virus information from a Chinese website, as unbelievable as that may sound. It was admitted to by Dr. Kate Broderick of Inovio Pharmaceuticals on the BBC.
2: And so we have to be grateful here that the Chinese posted the genetic code because it was from that that you were able to start working on it, understanding what was actually happening here. Um, So once you have that code, why is that important? What does that unlock for you? Yeah, absolutely. And I have to thank the Chinese authorities because without that, we really couldn't have done anything. So because we use a DNA medicine vaccine, we need the genetic code to be able to design the vaccine. So as soon as we received that code, we were able to immediately start designing the vaccine. And in three hours, we had a design ready and ready to
5: go three, so hours. three hours to oh design a, a vaccine
0: yes you heard that right they are thanking the chinese government for posting the genetic code to a website from which after just two hours they supposedly had the potion they insisted the entire world would take china a sworn enemy of the west and of america And Innovia was not the only pharmaceutical company to develop a vaccine in a record few hours or days. They all did, and all from the same Chinese genetic code. Gosh, these are trusting souls. This miracle cure was supposed to solve all of our problems, but it was a lie because the shots are actually the weapon that's wielded at a distance. It is designed to harm, not to help. The rider of the white horse, posing as a white knight coming to save us, pulled off the victory, and successfully deployed his weapon. This weapon is doing what all good modern biological warfare weapons do. It degrades its victims using multiple complementary mechanisms. Slowly, very slowly, people are awakening to the realization that something is amiss. It's not right. An overwhelming number of professional athletes, for example, are dropping dead on the field or being permanently disabled. Heart attacks and strokes in teens and young people, even in children, is common. An unprecedented 40% excess death rate has been reported by leading insurance companies, when a 10% excess death rate is a once-in-200-year catastrophe, and it isn't attributable to COVID. There is more to come from this bioweapon, and the rest of these parallel passages will tell us exactly what we should expect. Is this the opening of the end times? Time will tell. But if the rest of these preliminary end-time events unroll in sequence, we will soon know that the future is here. Jesus said that we cannot know the day or hour he will return to the earth, but we are expected to know the time and season of his return by paying attention to the instructions that the Bible provides. Did you take the vaccine? If you did, and you are a Christian, don't fret. God has you one way or the other. Just don't further degrade and debase your body that he gave you by taking any more shots, no matter what promises or assurances you may be given by the authorities, and no matter what threats you face if you don't. And keep your kids far, far away from them. But if you want to see if there is any potential detoxification treatment, you should reach out to doctors like Ariana Love or Simone Gold when the authorities are done persecuting her in prison for simply trying to warn people about these same authorities, or Dr. Lee Merritt of The Medical Rebel or naturopathic doctor Peter Glidden in Michigan, or anyone else who will listen and take your concerns seriously. Maybe start at medicalrebel.com or americasfrontlinedoctors.org. If you aren't a Christian, you should seriously consider becoming one. Soon. Whatever you do, pay attention to what the Bible teaches about these times and what it advises us to do. In Revelation 9.21, during the height of God's wrath, it says this, And they did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. The word sorcery is the Greek word pharmakia, from which we get the words pharmacy and pharmaceuticals. In John's day, it was associated with alchemy and occult practices, and I have to wonder how much they still influence this branch of science today. Look at the sequence of this warning. Murder the planned, deliberate killing of one or more people, which the release of a bio weapon would certainly fulfill, pharmakia, drugs, medications to affect health or kill people, sexual immorality, like the woke culture, trans this and sexual that, and thefts, the raiding of people's property by the super-rich as the economy is deliberately collapsed and chaos ensues. As Klaus Schwab put it, you will own nothing and be happy. God, through Jesus Christ, told us all about Satan's game plan long before the game plan was formed. Do you see it? Can you see it? If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and give it a happy face, a 5 e star, or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. Write it on a telephone pole somewhere, underneath one of those newfangled 5G transmitting devices, just to poke them. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player, FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Until next time, research how to grow food in small spaces and consider getting a hydroponic system. I'm not peddling these things, but food shortages are coming, and I want everybody to be as prepared as possible. As you wait breathlessly for the next episode of this broadcast, really encourage someone else to listen. If they spurn it, well, at least you tried to do something. And if they listen, hey, I got another listener.